Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. This is episode number 56 of The Next Track. And this episode is brought to you by our friends at Rogue Amoeba, the makers of Audio Hijack. If you can hear it on your Mac, you can record it with Audio Hijack. I'll have a bit more to say about Audio Hijack a little bit later, as well as a special offer for you. But right now, let's get on with it. Kirk? We've mentioned in a couple of previous episodes that when we initially started this podcast, we didn't want to talk too much about iTunes. And we avoided it for pretty much a year until an episode a few weeks ago when we talked about iTunes misconceptions. There'll be a link in the show notes to that episode. But we recently ran a survey and a great deal of our listeners responded. And one of the comments that many people said was that they really wanted to hear more about iTunes. So while this is not going to become an iTunes podcast, we thought we'd take another episode to discuss one of the key elements of managing your music library in iTunes, and that's playlists. Yeah, I've been hoping we'd be able to do an episode about this because I often hear from iTunes users, people who use my Apple scripts or just have general questions. And I can tell from the way they talk about iTunes that they don't quite understand some of the mechanics, the stuff under the hood, the nuts, the bolts. I just want to remind listeners who may not have listened to our iTunes Misconceptions episode. There's a slogan that I mentioned in that episode, and this is sort of going to be the slogan for this episode, and it's very important to understand this. iTunes is just a database. Or, as I like to say, a database with an audio player nailed on. And that's where I'd like to start, an audio player. Because... We have all these media files we want to play, and we certainly don't want to click on each file one at a time in the Finder. Can you imagine every time you wanted to hear a song, you'd have to go find the file in the Finder and play its preview or something? No, we'd need a jukebox application. And at the very least, minimally, we'd want this jukebox application to show all of our media files in some kind of master list so we don't have to go digging around the Finder for them. And you'd want a way to assemble a list of songs to play in a particular order, sequentially. So you didn't have to click each song individually whenever you wanted to play it. Now, of course, iTunes allows you to save these playlists so you can always have them around. Or you, you can create playlists on the fly. Right. And that's what iTunes offers with Up Next, which used to be called iTunes DJ. I really preferred iTunes DJ to Up Next because it wasn't an actual playlist and it didn't show up when you click that little button at the top of the window. But you do, at a minimum, want at least a playlist. So as you said, you don't necessarily have to play them in order. So if iTunes is just a database, how does a playlist come out of that database? Okay, well, here's where the, the nuts and bolts part of the show commences. I want to talk a little about how a database works in a software application like iTunes, but also like in uh, the Contacts app or a task manager or a to-do list. Applications like these are built using a three-part architectural concept known as Model View Controller, or MVC for short. There are three separate things, Model View Controller. What are they? Well, any database application is, of course, going to have a database, a container of information. Usually it's a file, but it can also be held in the application's memory. Now, a database contains at least one list of items called a table, but a database can contain more than one table, and each of these tables can contain different items. But in any case, the database as a whole is the model of the MVC triumvirate. A database application is also going to have multiple user interface components, like windows or panels or, or a list of things. Items like these are each a view. And the third concept, the controller, is all the software apparatus that takes information from the model 
and renders it in the view and enables the user to interact with the interface to manipulate information in the model. The model is the database, the view is the interface, the controller is the code that shuttles information between them for the user. So can we come up with a physical metaphor for that? Let's say the database is a supermarket with aisles and shelves and products all over the place. Um, they are organized in a certain way, so that is a kind of a table. They're, they're set up in a certain way. The controller is me when I go in to buy things at the supermarket. I go in to buy some milk and some cheese and some oranges and apples. And the view is my shopping cart, what I've selected from the shelves and what is rendered in my shopping cart. Yeah. Would that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah, sort of. It's kind of close. Um, but you're talking about physical objects, and database management is somewhat virtual. I mean, information from the database can be displayed any number of ways in a view by using you know, different placement, different text sizes, different text colors, for instance, whereas uh, the asparagus is always going to look like asparagus. Let me describe two fairly common iTunes activities where this MVC interaction comes into play. One way to add a music file to iTunes is to drag it from the Finder into the library section of the sidebar. Now, when you do this, that view, that upper section of the sidebar, has actually been waiting for you to do something like that. And so when iTunes detects that you've dragged an addable file into this area, the view tells the controller, hey, here's a file that needs to be added. And the view passes the file path of the dragged file to the controller. The controller jumps into action. It gets information about the file, the, the size, kind, bitrate, things like that, plus any metadata. And it tells the model to create a new track entry with that information. Once the new track entry is created in the model in the database, the controller then updates any views that happen to be displaying tracks with that new track entry, which is how it then appears in the iTunes interface. Another activity is playing a track. When you double click on a track in a playlist, in a view, the view detects the clicks and where you've clicked. The view then says to the controller, look up the track entry represented by this thing that was just clicked on in my view. The controller retrieves the track entry in the database, passes its file path to the audio player component so it can go get the file, grab the audio, and play it. In the iTunes Misconceptions episode, I believe you talked about the fact that iTunes does not know that albums exist. iTunes only knows about tracks, and the only thing that creates an album is the fact that they all have the same album tag. Would the controller be the part that tells iTunes that all of these tracks with the same album tag are indeed the same album, and that tells the view part to display them together? Right. When you tell iTunes to display songs in album view, the controller uses an algorithm to render the track information from the database in a albumy way for the view. But likewise, it does a similar thing for artists. It's always the same information, it's just rendered differently. Let me talk a little about the iTunes database, and it essentially has two big sections, the track entries and the playlist entries. Each track entry appears once in the database and contains tag info and a track ID. Each playlist entry contains a list of track IDs that each refers to a particular track entry. So a playlist in the database doesn't contain track entries, just pointers to track entries. And you can see this if you open the iTunes library XML file in a text editor like TextEdit, and, and it's okay to do that, you won't wreck anything. And you'll see up top a very large section of track entries, and then eventually playlist entries for all the playlists. And they're just lists of track IDs. 
So when a playlist has to be displayed, the controller gathers all the track IDs from a particular playlist entry, works with the database to figure out which track entries they point to, and then it renders the track information in the view. So this is a good time to point out a couple of things about the way iTunes works. You mentioned the iTunes library XML file. You may not see that in your iTunes folder. And if you don't, you go into iTunes Preferences Advanced and you check the option to allow third-party applications to access this file. This used to be created all the time and it's not anymore. It's really useful to have because if you ever have a problem with your the other file, the iTunes library.itl, which is the main library file, the XML file can rebuild your library. So the second thing is the main library file is the one called iTunes library ITL. Now I'm looking in my folder right now, the ITL file is 29 megabytes and the XML file is 138 megabytes. This isn't just because, as Doug said, there's playlist information. It's because the ITL file is compressed. If you were to open it with a text edit, you can't read anything in it. But what you will notice is this is being constantly updated. Every time you play a track, iTunes updates the play count and the last play date. So it rewrites the library file. Every time you change a tag, it does the same thing. Every time you rate a track, anything you do in iTunes updates the ITL file. The XML file is not updated as frequently. And as an aside, we're going to talk about smart playlists in a bit. Things have gotten a lot better. But a few years ago, if you had a lot of smart playlists in your iTunes library, it would slow things down a great deal because every time you would make a change to anything in the library, iTunes would have to recalculate what's in all those smart playlists. So just keep that in the back of your mind. We'll get to smart playlists in a minute and you'll, I think you'll understand why this used to be a problem. It's not anymore because they've sped up the way the database works. Right. I'd like to go back to what you said about making the iTunes library XML available for third-party applications. The reason the XML file was originally made available at all is because other Apple apps like, uh, well, originally iPhoto, but Photos, Keynote, iMovie, things like that, they all have a media browser that allows you to select a track from iTunes to use in, well, in a Photos case, a slideshow or a Keynote presentation or movie music. So these apps would consult the iTunes XML file to create these song lists for their media browser. But Apple now uses an internal framework called IT Library to do that. And as a result, they've made the XML optional with that preference setting you mentioned. In fact, they even refer to it as the legacy XML. From my point of view, you should always leave that setting on because a lot of my scripts and apps and other developers' apps too, still need to access the XML to get information about your iTunes library. It's just faster than using that IT library framework. And I think there's also another framework, it's called the Media Library API, which gives- Whoa, slow down there, Doug. You're getting too developer here. I think a lot of our listeners are gonna be lost. You're right, I'm sorry. My enthusiasm's got the better of me. But this is a good spot to take a break because I have something else exciting to talk about briefly, and then we'll get back to the nuts and bolts of iTunes playlists in about a minute. When I was a kid, I used to record a lot of stuff off the radio, because it was easy. But when I started listening to music on a computer, a cassette deck hooked up to the headphone jack was not ideal. So, like a lot of Mac users, I discovered Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba, and I've been using it ever since. Anything you can hear on your Mac, from virtually any app, you can record with Audio Hijack. It is really that simple. If you do any kind of home recording or want to, you need Audio Hijack in your dock. So many times, it has been the answer when I think, how am I going to record that? For example, 
Let's say you're a fan of the annual BBC Proms broadcast that begin in a month or so. You know you can't possibly catch all the performances live, right? But you can schedule Audio Hijack for when you can't be around to press record on the broadcast yourself. Think about all the stuff that streams live every day that you miss out on because you can't time shift it. Well, you can with Audio Hijack. Kirk and I are both such big believers in Audio Hijack and big believers that you'll like it too. We've arranged a deal with Rogue Amoeba to encourage Next Track listeners to give it a try. Right now, you can save 20% on a license for Audio Hijack with this coupon code. Next Track. All one word, all uppercase. Next Track. That's the code to use to get 20% off your purchase of Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba. Remember, anything you can hear on your Mac, you can record with Audio Hijack. Download your free trial of Audio Hijack now from Rogue Amoeba. Okay, so we've got a good firm background, which may be a little bit too much for a lot of people, um, about what a database is, how iTunes works. And we know you're really interested yeah, in this, Doug. I'm sorry. Um, and and a, I think some of our listeners are. Of course. So let's let's go concrete now. Um, iTunes has a number of different kinds of playlists. And the simplest of these is the plain playlist or the dumb playlist as opposed to smart or genius playlists, which are dynamically created. Here's a fun fact. Plain playlists are the only kind of playlists that accept tracks manually added by the user. Um, as I said earlier, in the database, a playlist entry is just a list of track ID pointers, and a plain playlist entry in the database will also have, at the very least, the name of the playlist and its own individual ID. There are a couple of ways you can add music to a new playlist. You can click Edit Playlist, which is under the playlist name when you're viewing it, and you get a column to the right showing the playlist and a big pane to the left showing your music and you can go through it and select it. You know, one thing I love about that edit playlist panel is that you can enter a description for the playlist. So you can include a note about it, like, I don't know, the date you made it or the reason you made it. Yeah, or or the mood that you, you want, or let's say you've made a playlist for exercising or running. Um, the only problem is you can't see that playlist description in the sidebar. You can only see it when you're actually viewing the playlist. So it's not entirely practical. Um, the other option is simply dragging items to that playlist. Remember, it's a blank page. Playlists like this are interesting in order to collect music and organize music, but they're more interesting when you create an actual playlist, like a mixtape, where you choose the order of the songs. So you can drag them up and down. You can choose, you could sort them by artist or album or duration, but you probably don't want to do that. But you can drag them up and down and change the order. And... Uh, again, while smart playlists to me are the, the best feature in iTunes, regular playlists are the second best feature. I generally don't listen to playlists in order. Um, I know a lot of people do. They'll put like a one-hour playlist for when they're running or cycling or whatever because they want to start with some, you know, moderately fast music and then faster music and then slightly slower at the end when they're cooling off. I never do that. But if you want to make a playlist for a party or if you want to make a playlist to play at a wedding or something like that, you know, you, you might want to have certain songs. You know, there are all those typical wedding songs and you want to make sure they're in the right order. Yeah. And that goes back to our original concept of a, of a jukebox application, a library to display the entire media collection and a way to play songs from it sequentially. I mean, I know some people like to play tracks from the music library, but to me, that's like going to a public library, getting a book, and then staying in the library to read it. Wouldn't you much rather take the book with you so you can read it someplace else? Well, that's kind of what making playlists is like. So if I use the media picker at the top left of the iTunes window, I can choose music, 
movies, TV shows, those are playlists in a, in a way, aren't they? Yes, they are sort of playlists, but they're, they're special playlists. They're library playlists. iTunes determines what kind of media a file is when it's added. And so that's when it assigns a track to a media library, or if you change the track's media kind. But structurally, in the database, these media libraries are pretty much like any other playlist. Here's one for you. When is a folder not a folder? When it's a playlist folder. Playlist folders are much more like plain playlists than anything like a folder, and I'll tell you why, and it's a bit counterintuitive. As you may know, you can drag a playlist to a playlist folder, and it appears, apparently, underneath or inside the playlist folder in a folder-like hierarchy, but there are actually no folders anywhere that contain playlists. It's all in the way the view displays these playlists. Here's how it works. When you add a playlist to a playlist folder, the track IDs from that playlist get added to the playlist folder. But if you were to look at the playlist folder in the XML, you would see no indication whatsoever of what playlist those tracks belong to. A playlist folder is simply a list of track IDs just like any other plain playlist. Instead, it's the playlist you dragged to the playlist folder that gets modified with an additional property. It's the ID of the playlist folder you put it in. That tells iTunes that this playlist is now a child of that parent playlist folder. And that's why you're able to view all the tracks of the child playlists when you look at the tracks in a playlist folder, because iTunes has created this list of track IDs from each of the playlists it contains. And of course, you can still view the tracks in the original playlist as well, but there are no folders that contain the playlist. It's, it's purely an an artifice of the interface. I use folders a lot to organize my iTunes library. I have a folder, for instance, labeled Bob Dylan, and it contains a number of playlists with Bob Dylan music. Some of them are normal playlists, such as the live 1966 box set that was released a few months ago. And some of them are smart playlists. We'll talk about them later. So I have a Dylan 1960 smart playlist, 1970s, etc. And having this folder allows me to organize the playlist. I have another folder of jazz, and inside I have a number of playlists, normal and smart, by artist or by style, etc. So playlist folders are actually a great way to organize your music, not only for playing the music, but also for syncing to an iOS device. And we'll talk about using playlists for that a little bit later. Next, we've got dynamic playlists, which are your smart and your genius playlists. Essentially, iTunes creates these playlists for you, dynamically. In the case of smart playlists, you provide the criteria, and for Genius Playlists, you provide the seed track, but everything else is handled by iTunes. If we look at these in the database, these dynamic playlists include not only the track IDs of the tracks they contain and the playlist name and the playlist ID, but also the query used to create them. It's encoded, of course. Now, this is so that they can be recreated if you import a playlist or a library that you had previously exported. So Smart Playlists, to me, are one of the best things in iTunes. Apple added smart playlists in iTunes 3. This goes back to 2002, I believe. If you're familiar with databases, you know that a database just stores information, but in order to view any of that information, you have to send a query to a database. And a smart playlist is essentially that. Apple designed a very intuitive interface where you choose, for instance, artist is Grateful Dead, for example, if you want a smart playlist with all your Grateful Dead music. 
You could choose album is Sgt. Pepper or album contains Sgt. Pepper. So you don't have to type out the whole thing. You could choose rating is five stars to find all of your five star tracks. But it gets even better because you can combine conditions. So you can choose artist is Grateful Dead, rating is five stars, last played is more than six months ago, play count is greater than 25, etc. You can have dozens of conditions. So each one of these refines a query. Now, think, think about this as a sort of a funnel that you're filtering. And the first filter, artist is Grateful Dead, well, it gets to those 6,000 Grateful Dead tracks you have in your library. Then if, you know, rating is five stars, it gets down to about 800 tracks. Then last played is, and then so you can refine it. And each criterion that you add to your smart playlist makes a, a smaller and smaller number of tracks until you found exactly what you want. One of the things I use it for is not just to find a, a certain kind of music, but to, to separate a certain kind of tracks. For instance, now in the uh, in the smart playlist editor, you can use iCloud criteria like uh, iCloud tracks that have been updated, iCloud tracks that are duplicates, iCloud tracks that are ineligible. And this makes keeping track of those tracks uh, a lot easier. I have smart playlists for things like, and I mentioned my jazz folder before. So I have a, a, I have a lot of music by Bill Evans, a great pianist. And in particular, there were a number of live recordings from 1980 that were wonderful. So I have a Bill Evans 1980 smart playlist. And basically, it is artist is Bill Evans, year is 1980. Because I include the, the year for many of my albums and, and these in particular. I have others just by artist. I have, I'm a big fan of jazz pianist Brad Meldow, who I saw in concert last week. And I mentioned is my next track, I think two episodes ago. I've labeled my Brad Meldow music by either live or studio using the comments field. So I have one smart playlist for his studio tracks, which are shorter and tighter and more concise, and another one for his live tracks, which are long and 10, 15, even 20 minutes long, because I don't really feel like listening to the live tracks all the time, and sometimes I want the studio tracks. So smart playlists give you just a, a pretty much an infinite way of filtering your music and choosing specific bundles of music. And in that sense, um, it's a great first pass search filter. I, I will frequently create a temporary smart playlist to cast a wide net for tracks that I'd like to work on, either to convert or edit or work with or whatever. Um, I wanted to mention Playlist Windows, which had been around since the first iTunes, but sometime, I think it was iTunes 11 when iTunes Match came out. Apple did a big rewrite uh, of how playlists are managed, and one of the casualties was Playlist Windows, which enabled you to open a playlist in a separate window and drag tracks to them and play the playlist and, and so on. Well, those are back as of iTunes 12.5. If you right-click or control-click on a playlist, you can choose Open in New Window. Or the shortcut is to hold the command key and then double click on the playlist name in the sidebar. That will also open a playlist window. Um, two other types of playlists, Apple Music playlists and shared playlists over home sharing. We don't really have time to discuss, but briefly they work with files that are accessed over a network, either the internet or your local network. And I think we should probably save that as a topic for an episode in the future. Another way you can use playlists, and this is something that I do all the time, is to sync music to an iOS device. So to do this, connect your iOS device, select it in iTunes, and you'll go into music, and you'll, at the top of the window, you'll have a checkbox where it says sync music. 
And if you don't want to sync your entire music library, click Selected Playlists, Artists, Albums, and Genres. Now, you get this long list in the iTunes window, and first you get playlists, to the right you get artists, then below it you get genres, and then to the right you get albums. I only use playlists, and what I do is I organize playlists for syncing. So, for instance, I have a playlist called Dylan Selected. It's the Dylan albums that I want on my iPhone. I never play this playlist in iTunes, but it's checked in this interface, so it syncs. I have another one. I mentioned my Bill Evans 1980, my Brad Meldow Studio, my Bill Nelson 4 and 5 star tracks, my John Fox 4 and 5 star, my Clash playlist. I make playlists by artist with the, the albums and the songs that I want from those artists on my iOS devices. So I find this an easier way to choose what I'm going to sync rather than going through and selecting individual items. All right. Well, there's obviously no shortage of handy and helpful things you can do with playlists in iTunes. And I think we've come a long way from our minimal jukebox app. For those who really want a minimalist iTunes that only plays music, I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that I've written that explains how you can turn off all sorts of iTunes features and get rid of a lot of things you don't want in the interface. This is a really popular article. A lot of people want this because they feel that iTunes has too many features. Finally, if you need help corralling your playlists, I've got a few Apple scripts for iTunes that can assist. One thing I often find daunting is that you can only select one playlist at a time, and there are a number of actions where I think it would be helpful to operate on two or more playlists at a time, primarily when it comes to deleting playlists. So in that regard, I've got Delete Empty Playlists, which gathers and lists any empty playlists in your iTunes library, plain, smart, and playlist folders, and you can select the ones you want to delete at once or delete them all. I've got Merge Delete Playlists. That enables you to combine the track contents of several playlists into a new or existing playlist and optionally delete the source playlists. You can also simply delete a batch of playlists. Smarts is a free application available at the Mac App Store that can save the criteria of a smart playlist to disk so you can reload it anytime later. Playlists Info displays all of your playlists along with their size, time, number of tracks, and loved disliked status. It can also export a text file listing that information. And Show in Playlists provides a floating live updating palette that lists the playlists a selected or playing track is in. So those are some Apple scripts for iTunes playlists you may find helpful. There will be links to them in the show notes. And we will have more in-depth looks at iTunes in future episodes. Before we get to our next tracks, we'd like to thank Rogue Amoeba for sponsoring this episode. They are the makers of Audio Hijack. If you can hear it on your Mac, you can record it with Audio Hijack. And remember that you can save 20% on a license for Audio Hijack with this coupon code, Next Track. Head on over to rogamoeba.com. Kirk, what's your next track? So my next track this week goes back to 1977. And, and I was just telling Doug before we started recording this segment that I really wanted to get something more contemporary. But I've been listening to this album a, a number of times recently, and, and I really like it. It's called Running on Empty. It's a 1977 album of live tracks, and some of them are recorded live in performance. Some are recorded live in hotel rooms or in the, the bus and all that. And one of the reasons I listened to this again a few times recently is that I rewatched that Cameron Crowe series called Roadies. Roadies is about roadies for this band. And, you know, if you've seen Almost Famous, it's it's about the band and the journalist. And it ignored the whole roadie aspect. And, and the, the roadies series looks at the other side of it. 
Now, when this series begins, you know, Cameron Crowe really likes music, and you can kind of expect that one of the songs in the last episode is going to be The Loadout from Running on Empty, which is a song where Jackson Brown describes the process. The concert's over, the roadies are packing everything up. The Loadout is when they take all the, the, the gear off the stage and they put it into the trucks. And Jackson Brown does appear in that episode, and he sings part of the song, and it's, a, it's an end of the series, and it's the end of a person's life, a, a celebration of a person's life. And going back to this album, Running on Empty, just makes me realize what a great songwriter Jackson Brown was. He wrote these wonderful songs with wonderful words and melody, and he wrote a lot of songs for other people. He wrote songs for the Eagles, like Take It Easy, which is probably the Eagles' you know, best song ever. He wrote a song called These Days for Nico that was on her album Chelsea Girls, and he was 16 years old when he wrote this song. He was a truly prolific songwriter, but Running on Empty, it just has that sort of, it, it's a concept album in a certain way because it's talking about his life on the road. It's got an old Gary Davis song, Cocaine, and you'll have heard in last week's episode, we talked about Reverend Gary Davis. Anyway, it's a great album, Running on Empty, 1977 album, and sort of the, the culmination of his period as one of the preeminent singer-songwriters in the U.S. Doug? So I kept hearing this song, snippets of it in commercials. I heard it in promos for sporting events. I saw it in a car commercial, a TV show or two even. It was this stalking, funky soul song, like James Brown's Cold Sweat, Everything on the One, you know? Might have even sampled Cold Sweat. But the only lyric I ever heard in this song was, How You Like Me Now, repeated over and over again, which is a pretty good hook. Definitely works in car commercials and transitional scenes in TV shows. Well, it turns out, if you don't already know, that is the name of the song from the second album by a band called The Heavy. I looked them up, found the song, added the album, liked it, added their other albums. I really like them a lot. And I, I think it's the first time I discovered a band through its music being used in a commercial. Seriously. And I think they intended that. Listen, because according to Wikipedia, they've apparently licensed How You Like Me Now to dozens of commercials, TV shows, movies. There's money to be made from sync licenses like this. And they've licensed several of their other songs in a likewise way. Now, if you're a working musician these days, you got to make a buck where you can. I remember in the late 80s when Eric Clapton licensed a new version of After Midnight, uh, licensed it to uh, Michelob. There was outrage. Since then, though, not so much. It wouldn't surprise me if The Heavy was thinking along the same sort of lines. Let's not worry about radio hits. We'll write some cool songs that we can license for big bucks, and then we won't have to work so hard. And apparently that's true enough because their four albums have two, three, and four years between releases. Now, I don't know if my theory is true, but I'd never blame working guys for making money wherever they can. I used to be a starving musician myself. The Heavy, The House That Dirt Built from 2009 is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>